Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. everybody to another episode of Odd Strickland. I'm your host, Shwini Poo, and this is episode 221. My co-host, Stacy, is still on vacation visiting the motherland, but I am joined by not a first-time guest, but first time in a long time. You know him as at Basketball Robot on Twitter, his actual name. Is Dallas Amico? Dallas, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Great. Should we started off by just uh, you know saying fuck KD. Uh, Jason Tatum is over. <laughs> Jason Tatum's overrated. Uh, what else do we got to get off our chests? Emmanuel quickly is going to have a breakout season. Julius Randle can get fucked. Uh, Tom Thibodeau can get fucked. Uh, what else do we need to get off our chest? I mean, I think that's it. That's the pod. So, uh, <laughs> thanks for listening. Uh, no, look, we're going to get into all of those things. Uh, but before we get started, I do have to make an announcement that the Strickland does have a Patreon. You can subscribe, subscribe to it. There are a number of tiers. There's a $6 tier that gets you access to this pod, Pod Strickland, that I do every Friday with Prez. You also get access to the Strickland mailbag. Hosted by Drew Steele, a.k.a. Doug. That drops every other week. You also get access to the Strickland Discord, where the conversation never stops. Although it has trickled. It has has slowed down to a trickle in the dog days of August. There is a $9 tier that gets you access to Strick and Roll, my solo pod, where I rant and rave about the Knicks even more. You also get access to, and much more importantly, Wonderful weekly articles written by Jack Hunley and Matthew Miranda, two of the best in the business. There are further tiers. There's a $15 tier, a $30 tier, a $50 tier, and a $100 tier. Those come with a variety of additional benefits, like merchandise discounts, listening in on pod recordings, even potentially co-hosting a podcast alongside yours truly one day. Whether you choose to subscribe or not, none of this would be possible without you. So, without further ado, let's get started. Uh, And I guess... Uh, you know, look, we, we, we have to get started um, with a, a piece that came out yesterday. Uh, you know, Mark Berman, he has been on hiatus, and he came back with a bang, dropping an article on at 7.45 p.m. on a Saturday night for some reason um, about, uh, you know, Donovan Mitchell trade talks. I don't think there was a lot of new information in it in it, uh, but there were some interesting tidbits that I'm not quite sure what the motivation was for some of this stuff. Uh, obviously, the other thing to note is that Berman clearly has a very good in with head coach, uh, who you mentioned previously in this pod, Tom Thibodeau. Um, <laughs> I think the main thing... Look, the he, this is the interesting bit in here. Uh, I don't really know what to make make of it, and I also am not totally like. I don't think this matters as much as people 
think it matters, but I think it's worth noting um, that apparently Tom Thibodeau does want the Knicks trade for Donovan Mitchell. Not a huge surprise. Uh, but the, the interesting tidbit in the article was that, uh, and I'll read it, there is belief around the league Thibodeau would prefer to give up Barrett in a deal than shooting guard Quentin Grimes, who is coming off a solid rookie year in a summer league in which he looked quicker and more sculpted. Grimes is a better <laughs> defender, three-point shooter than Barrett. Um, I this like the I thought this. Uh, I, I, I'll just say this: I don't actually think this is a huge deal because Thibodeau isn't running basketball operations. And like, if he has a preference of I mean, it, it makes me question his talent identification. Uh, but like, again, he's not in charge of personnel moves, so I'm not sure how important that is. It is a little bit concerning, but well, I also it matters when it, it matters when it comes to putting players on the court. But it doesn't matter right. when it comes to like deciding what the roster looks like. But we've we already knew that he sucks at determining who's the better players for putting on the court. I mean, <laughs> he has a long history of that, so. <laughs> yeah, and, tell and us I, anything new. Yeah. Well, and I think so. I had, a, I was just like, you know, then you read the rest of the article and it like goes on and on about how, um, you know, there's there's something that mentioned later in the article about how the fit with, uh, you know, if you get Donovan Mitchell, you know, between Brunson, Mitchell, RJ, Randall, that would be a very clunky fit. And it goes on to say that, uh, you know, uh, what, let me see, a league source or another talent evaluator um, suggested that, uh, you know, they would need to move Randall or should move Randall in a, in a three-team trade or something like that. Um, so I kind of wonder if if some of this is about, like, does he prefer RJ, like, does he prefer Grimes in a vacuum to RJ Barrett? Or is he... Or is his thinking like, if you're going to give me Mitchell and I have Mitchell, Brunson, and Randall and RJ, like I think Grimes is a better fit in a starting lineup, but maybe just trade Randall. Like I, I wonder if that was kind of the angle that was being pushed there, um, because like we've all talked about this endlessly. But like, and, and I know there's there are some people who push back on this, but I personally just, I really strongly believe that if the Knicks did acquire Donovan Mitchell, but kept Julius Randle, and the starting lineup was Brunson, RJ, Mitchell, Randall, and Mitchell Robinson, um, I think that team would honestly be bad. Uh, I think they'd be like probably the most disappointing team in the league, potentially. Um, I, I just, like, Randall has to go, and I just you know, that's that was my main takeaway again from the article. And the other takeaway I had was just like they clearly don't seem to view Donovan Mitchell as a like gotta have at all costs level of player because you know he mentions that they're wary of giving up too much because they don't want to get stuck in a position where they are good but they have no avenue to really become a contending team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was I that was really encouraging to me. Um, there, the especially the line about like it's easier to get to forty seven wins, which we think he would get us there, than to go from forty seven to fifty seven. Um, going or going from where we are now to forty seven is easier than going from forty seven to fifty seven. So I thought, I mean, I thought yeah. that was just exactly what you want to say. Um, one thing I was thinking about with respect to the the line about Grimes and RJ. I mean, maybe it's the fit thing, and there's definitely something about like I mean, we know that. Tibbs is not uh, 
he's not renowned for his foresight or for his planning ahead. Um, you know, he wanted to trade rookie year, was it rookie year or end of first year RJ Barrett for Marcus Morris or something like that? Um, right? Like, not, not exactly like a plan for the future kind of guy, but just like win as many games as I possibly can this year as if it's my last um, every single year. Uh, so, I mean, maybe something like that is going on, but like, I feel like uh, that's really dumb because obviously, you know, like next year, even if you get Donovan Mitchell, you're not contending. It's not your 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 window hasn't even opened yet um, at that point. So that's really not how you should be thinking. You should be thinking of um, and and ultimately, I mean, I'm I'm really skeptical that those guys uh, as well may for some of the reasons you were mentioning, but um, Brunson, RJ, and Donovan Mitchell. It's really hard for me to see those three and then add throw Mitch Robinson in like those four being on like a contending team. Like who's that? Who's the fifth guy that's getting those guys to be a contender? It's going to be, you know, somebody who's it's really hard to get. But anyways, that I mean, that means you're going to be flipping guys and like down the road, who has more trade value or like who has more trade value? RJ Barrett's going to have more trade value than Quentin Grimes. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, unless something radical changes. But um, so if you're thinking about like you have to move somebody else in the future, whether it's uh Brunson whether it's uh I mean whoever it is um uh, RJ is definitely the better guy to keep with respect to that and planning for the future but another thing um that crossed my mind is like it could be like I could imagine um you know because who has leaked in this front office nobody has leaked since they've been here except for Tibbs he's the only one who's leaked anything so like if this some of this stuff is coming from Tibbs you could imagine him being like I want Donovan Mitchell I want him. And people in the front office are like, no, it's dumb. He's like, get him at any cost. Give RJ Barrett up to get Donovan Mitchell. I was willing to give him up for Marcus Morris. I'll do it for Donovan Mitchell. Um, and you can imagine to be like, no, it's not only is it dumb, but we'll get absolutely slandered if we trade RJ Barrett for, and he's like, okay, I'll give you cover. I'll say Grimes is the better player, <laughs> like publicly. And then people will be like, oh, well, they didn't give up the, or Tibbs thought, you know, so, you, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I'm just kind of bullshitting. But uh, people were talking about this sort of thing, like, like uh, you know, um, oh, the Knicks leaking certain things about Grimes. I think I was, actually, you were talking about this, like leaking things about him possibly being a starter next year, maybe gives, you know, like Danny Ainge cover, cover to be able to claim that he got the better player or something like that. So, uh, I mean, if that kind of reasoning is actually going on, you could imagine Tibbs trying to give <laughs> cover for the thing that he wants to happen. But I honestly, I don't know. And I don't, I, I don't think this really uh, 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 means much of anything except uh, Berman's has a wonderful talent for stirring shit up. Um, yeah, I, the Grimes thing is interesting. I, I don't, I mean, look, what, the main takeaway for me from the article was one, Danny Ainge is psychotic. Um, he apparently asked for <laughs> the initial ask was like seven first round picks and players, which obviously that that was never going to happen. Um, I think the picks, it seems like somewhere between four and five is, is probable. And maybe even like, I think that's almost, definite i don't know which picks or you know obviously that's the the part we don't know but i think that i think there's like obviously a deal to be made with regard to draft compensation but from the article i don't 
See, the, the reason I don't know if the, the Grimes thing, if I buy that, like, it was leaked in there to kind of, like, up his value and make him more, you know, that way, like, if Ainge gets him in the deal, he can kind of, like, look at this great thing I got from the Knicks after all of my negotiating. I don't know if I buy that as, like, a motivation for the leak in this article because it feels like they don't want to give up Grimes because they don't have to. And the other part at the end of the article, which, like, I think we already knew because we have brains, but most Knicks fans have, like, been saying this, right, is that there is no other market. Like, there's no bidding war because the other, like, there's just not a team that can really compete with what the Knicks have other than teams that aren't going to trade for him. You know, like, Oklahoma City is not trading for Donovan Mitchell. Houston is not trading for Donovan Mitchell. Uh, New Orleans is almost definitely not trading for Donovan Mitchell, even though they have assets that would might be appealing to Utah. Um, and I think fundamentally, like, Ainge wants the New York Knicks draft picks, right? He wants to bet against the success of a franchise that has lost the most, that has the worst record in this millennium. Like, I, I understand why he wants to do that. But, like, inherently, that he's telegraphed his interest. But the point being is, like, there is no other market. So I think the Knicks are willing to operate in a position where it's like, look, we like our team. We think Brunson, you know, they also have this whole thing about how Tibbs thinks he can turn Brunson from a B-minus player to a B-plus player, <laughs> uh, which I thought was hilarious. But, like, it's, like, I don't, I just think the Knicks are like, why do we need to give you Grimes? Like, what? what is the reason here? Because you want what we have and we don't but we don't need to give you everything we have because you can't prove that there's another offer that you're willing to take right like there was that report earlier in the week out of utah where it was like oh ainge really like some of the other offers on the table where it's like okay then he should he should probably then he should go take those offers if he loves them so much he should take those offers and marry them um you know like i just i don't i don't and that was the other thing like the article really drives home, I think, is that, like, I just, again, I think the Knicks want Donovan Mitchell, um, but they're also aware that, like, I think they understand exactly who he is in the grand scheme of the NBA, where he's, like, an extremely good player, super talented offensive player, but he's not a guy you can just go all in on, unless, unless he's a finishing piece, right? Like, Kind of like how the Bucks went all yeah. in on Drew, right? That's the that would be if, the comparison. If, if Miami could get him, if Miami could get him, and like only give up uh, Harrow and like picks, and I don't know, there's no way they could do that. But if they could, you're like, oh shit, that's a legitimate contender now. You have this great defense already. Um, you know, Donovan can can fit in there. Um, it's already an aggressive defense where they're like ready, like they're, they're really good at covering and helping. Um, and what they really need is off the dribble playmaking and Donovan gives you that and a guy who can just score in crunch time, uh, and, and create something out of nothing. And Donovan gives you that. And at a really high level, like a team like that. Yeah. It makes sense to push everything in possible to get a guy like that. If you can retain Bam and Jimmy. Um, and at least some of your core, your core there, um, obviously they can't do it, but, um, yeah, we're not at that place and it's really hard. I mean, as the article said, right. Going from, uh, 47 to 57 is a 
different ball game, especially once you've used a lot of your premium assets. Um, and so, so you were just talking about um, uh, this this idea. Well, uh, you know, there's no there's no other market for him. So, like, why would we up our offer? And absolutely. But even if there was a market, I mean, you're talking about already without there being a market for him, probably we're talking like four or five first round picks. Um, if somehow some team came out of nowhere and could beat that offer, I don't have an interest in going above that anyways. Like <laughs> if a market arises, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not beating that. Um, like if somebody is beating what we are, what we're offering, which let's, let's say it's like, um, you know, two unprotected and three protected or something like that. Uh, and then like, just like bullshit young guys, if that's what we're offering right now. I'm not, I don't have any interest in going higher than that because you need somebody. I mean, I'm pretty convinced you need somebody better than Donovan Mitchell to win a championship unless something changes as your, as your best player, um, something unexpected changes. Uh, and how are you going after getting that guy? You're going to be drafting uh, mid to late um, you've used up uh, a number of your premium assets, your unprotected assets. So you're hoping that in like two or three years, you've collected some new picks um, and can maybe get lucky and flip. Um, I, I don't know. It just, it seems implausible to me. I think it's a lot easier to have the better guys first and then go out and get uh, the finishing piece like you mentioned than it is like, because if you get like a top five player, you have Giannis, well, then somebody like Drew Holiday can be your finishing piece, even though he's what, like a top, maybe top 40 player, maybe top 30. I don't think he's that good. He maybe was at one point. Um, this is Drew? Uh, so, yeah, it's Drew. Um, uh, he's he's so, a really weird player to like rank because his defense is like truly amazing. Um, but offensively, he is just so bizarre um just i i have no words to really like describe what he does um he's definitely like i don't when people talk about like true point guards uh i would venture to suggest that while i'm not a huge fan of that phrase uh i understand what it's trying to convey and i'm comfortable saying that um drew holiday is very much not a true <laughs> yeah it's funny he's actually i think he's a terrible fit with Giannis. um at least on the offensive side of the ball like you have probably the greatest finisher like probably he would be the i mean he's probably the greatest finisher maybe of all time and if you have him like next him, to like it's like what it's like him shack amari yeah. and maybe yeah. zion if he ever stops being fat yeah, yeah, seriously. And if and if you could put him next, imagine putting him next to a point guard like who anyone, Chris Paul, Steph, Curry, like any of these guys who can pass uh, and can actually like create some, have some gravity. Um, even just lower level guys who can who are better pick and roll ball handlers um, and better like Drew is very much in the you know sliders to are to score before pass you know um, kind of kind of point guard. Um, it, it it's just I, and he doesn't really space the floor for Giannis when he so it, not only does he not really set him up, um, he doesn't space the floor very well. Like nobody's really worried about Drew Holiday catch and shoot threat. Um, 
he's not. I, I don't know. Just like when you think about like the point guards you could put around Giannis, uh, it's probably one of the worst for as good as Drew is. Um, like a guy of that caliber. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. The I guess the the point was uh, once you have a guy like Giannis, which obviously really hard to get, but it's a lot easier to put other guys around him. Um, and I think James was saying something like this in the uh, uh, Discord the other day. Um, and I think there's something to it. Like, uh, it's a lot easier to go find the role players you need once you have the star in-house than it is to have the role players first and then go find the star that fits them. It's just, it's just sort of operating backwards, um, you know, and it does kind of force you into some bad places where you're like, uh, you know, maybe you invest in role players who are pretty good. Like, so like, um, you know, if we like came around, like if Grimes was coming up for a contract, you're like, oh, this guy's really good, but it can limit you on if you have Grimes and RJ, for example, and you're thinking of these as like, um, you know, guys you're going forward with, it can limit you on the sort of stars you go after. Or if you go after them, you've wasted some of the investment that you put into those guys if you're not getting value back for them. Right. Um, uh, 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 so there's there's some value in going after the big star first and then trying to um, uh, get the get the lesser star later. But yeah, I mean, I just like I, I think there's a way it works. And I also like one thing I it's that's worth, I think, considering is just the idea of like. You can't. So, like, there at any given time in the NBA, there's probably like I don't know somewhere between five to maybe seven, eight guys who are good enough to be the best player on a championship team. Uh, and generally speaking, you need to have one of those guys to win a championship. There are obviously like anomalies and outliers. So, like, you know, the 2004 Pistons is one that people go to a lot. Um, I would argue the 2014 Spurs are also another example because Duncan had clearly exited his peak and Kawhi hadn't quite ascended yet to his peak. So they were in this weird in-between phase. But they those two teams come to mind when you're just talking about like collections of players who just like threaded the needle well enough to win a championship even though they didn't have, you know, the proverbial best player on a championship team. Uh, but know that like both of those teams, so like they don't have that best player, but they were they're like teams that have like four top thirty, maybe even four top twenty five guys, right? Like Kawhi, Duncan, Parker, Ginobili, or even uh, you know like Rashid, Ben Wallace, Billups, Prince. Like there a lot of real a lot of high end talent that just wasn't the highest end, you know. And that's it's tough to get that many guys that good on a team yeah 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 exactly and but like the the point i'm making is like i think if you are unwilling to make moves like like i don't particularly love donovan mitchell i am very okay not trading for donovan mitchell but there's an argument that like yes he's short of that elite elite level um but he is offensively anyway 100 percent I mean, he would step in and be the Knicks' best offensive player by a significant margin, I think. Um, and, like, a, is that 
is he capable of being the best player in the championship team? No. Is the process of like going and getting him before you have that player the correct thing? Is that the optimal way to build a championship contender? No. But you can't let that necessarily dictate your moves because ultimately landing the that caliber of player is really, really fucking hard. And if you look through the history of the NBA, like, look, there's a reason why the best players in NBA history tend to have multiple championships. So if you're waiting for that guy, you're going to be waiting a really fucking long time um, if you're just holding out for perfection. So, like, I do think there's an argument for just like, hey, look, like, is this the optimal, correct way that we would ideally do this? No. But is it an upgrade? And should we, at, at some point, is it worth just striving to improve and striving to improve consistently? And does that position you to later on ultimately have the chance to land that the, the caliber of player you need, right? And I guess an example would be a team like Miami, who, if we're going to be honest, uh, since LeBron left, like, their planning for long stretches has been questionable, I think, to say the least. But, like, their willingness to just constantly try to win as many games as possible, and the fact that they are a major market, and obviously the weather is fantastic, um, like, that makes them appealing to stars consistently. And so, like, just being good and will and and trying to be good constantly is probably ultimately why they did land Jimmy Butler, right? Because because if you're Jimmy Butler, you can be you would look at that team and you'd be like, okay, look, I don't know what the fuck we're gonna do, and I don't know how we're gonna do it, but I also know like they will always be trying to add talent to win championships, and I'm good with that. So like, I think if you were the Knicks. There's a price you have to walk away from Donovan Mitchell, but like, there's also a price where I think you have to just be like, well, look, this isn't ideally what we would do, but fuck it, like, this is just what we're gonna do. Yeah, yeah, I hear that, and I do think, um, well, so first, to make your point, Jimmy would have never gone to Miami if it was like, you know, the Miami Hornets, <laughs> for example, right. right? Like a guy, a guy like that with his drive and desire to win, which is the kind of guy you want on your team uh, isn't, yeah, he's, he's only going to a winning organization uh, and an organization that he knows he can compete at. Um, but yeah, I do think Donovan Mitchell could be the best offensive player on a championship team too. Like, um, I think, I mean, I, I think, I think that's true. Um, but I guess I, I just get so worried about like, cause he's not, um, I, I don't know. I just get worried about, like, he's not the Jimmy Butler type, right? Like, the, the you don't see that, um, you know, whenever I scout uh, scout guys and I'm trying to see if I want to get them on the Knicks, like, when, when I scouted Julius Randle back when we were considering signing him and then went on to sign him, um, scout is a weird word. <laughs> I'm not so, I just, like, go and watch old film. Um, uh, I always like to start by watching first quarters and second quarters and not watch any fourth quarters because it tells you a lot about a guy, what they do in the first and second quarter, right? Like you will never catch a game where like Jimmy Butler is just like hanging out and joking around in the first and second quarter. 
he is diving for loose balls and like trying to steal every single, you know, anything he can. He's trying to punish you in the low post. And it's like nine minutes left in the first quarter, right? Um, that guy comes to play every single night. It doesn't matter if it's December or if it's November or if it's February or whatever, or June, right? He's going to be there and he's going he's gonna to be there to play. And you can pick up on a lot by what guys are doing, I think, in the first and second quarter. Um, but like, you go watch like Julius Randle when he was in New Orleans uh, and the first, second, third quarter, right? You have a lot of just like not caring. Um, and then you get more effort, increased effort as the game goes on. Um, uh, uh, but when you start seeing things like that, like those are really worrisome signs um, to me. And like, you know, the, the guy who's diving for loose balls in the first quarter, I know I can count on him in the, cha- you know, like if we're in the championship. Uh, and it's, you know, the fourth quarter and we're down to the wire. I know he's going to be fighting um, and he's not going to give up uh, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I mean, we just saw Donovan Mitchell in the playoffs <laughs> basically give up without really trying. Um, and that's, I mean, in a really good, like a, a good situation, like team wise, like multiple years of like either being the first seed in the conference or like, you know, having a team where everyone was like, oh, could this be the year? Like the Jazz legitimately maybe could break through. Look how they're beating everybody. Like they look really, you know, they look really good. Um, I don't know. So that worries me. Um, another thing that worries me, and I don't think it's been talked about as much, is like, uh, I hate, I'm not a big Quinn Snyder fan, uh, but there are big differences between Snyder and Tibbs. And both of the differences, I think, are going to make things harder on Donovan and require more of him. So, like, on offense, Tibbs is way less creative than Snyder. And Tibbs is a thousand percent going to be putting the ball in Donovan's hands if he's here all the time, right from the get-go. Where Quinn Snyder had these, like, complicated offensive sets, you know, and all these unique ways of getting the ball to other playmakers and scorers. Uh, and really didn't dial things up for Mitchell until like, you know, the third quarter, fourth quarter, when like, you know, crunch time came around. That's when it was like, all right, Donovan Mitchell, your turn to take over. But before that, he was pretty much in cruise control. You know, he'd be, he'd finish plays when like nothing, okay, so you ran a few pick and rolls, nothing worked out. All right, get it to Donovan and he's going to find, you know, make something happen out of this nothing. Uh, But largely was sort of on cruise control. That won't happen on a Tibbs coach team, right? Like, Tibbs wants the ball in his best player's hands as much as possible. So it's going to require more of him on the offensive side. And then on the defensive side too, um, Snyder's scheme was like, we basically don't help ever. So like as a perimeter defender, you like basically try to keep your guy in front of you, maybe, I guess. But then like, if he gets by you, you just sort of chill and like, no big deal. And like, go back, like go back to them when you can, but you let Gobert clean it up. And if somebody, if your guy gets, by, or if someone else's guy gets by them, you don't have to help, you don't have to dig, you don't have to bump the roll man. You just leave everything basically to Rudy Gobert. Um, but on the other hand, right, um, Tibbs for a drop scheme has basically the most aggressive drop scheme in the NBA, right? Guards come way down when they dig. They're, you know, definitely to the nail every time. Um, they bump the roll man, they overhelp. You even have guys from, the weak side who come and pack the paint um, on on uh, you know pick and rolls or on drives to the hoop, and then they have to recover out to their man. So it's like a really aggressive scheme that requires both a lot of um, 
intense focus and a lot of effort from players. So I think there's two ways in which it's going to be like a more demanding scheme. So um, maybe that could be good because you have more to do and you can't screw around. But on the other hand, like if you're not meeting the lesser challenge, why should I expect you to meet this, you know, meet this greater challenge? Um, but yeah, no, I hear the point you're making. I think I do think he can be the best scorer on a championship team. If you can put the right defensive personnel around him and the right, like, complementary uh, offensive players um, who are just really good defenders, uh, I could see it happening. Um, so, I mean, I, I do understand, I definitely understand being interested in him and being willing up to get, willing to give up a reasonable package. Yeah, I think um, the stuff you touched upon in terms of, like, the scheme, um, you know, Whatever issues Tibbs has, uh, I think defensively his scheme is really good. It just, he's also like, he's just not flexible with it. Um, so like, if you, this was like a main reason why I think ultimately the defense was so exposed with Kemba and Evan. Like, there was nothing he was going to do, first of all. I just want to be very clear about this. <laughs> Once you combine Kemba and Evan... There was really no scheme that's going to like cover that up and make that good. Yeah. But his scheme like very, very much exposed them, especially Kemba, because he is a useless help defender. You know, like he quite literally just is not impactful at all as a help defender. But to your point, like Tibbs' scheme calls for him to be helping all the time, but like I, it felt like all the time because he'd become crashing down on the roll man so ineffectively. Like I feel like that opened <laughs> up so many passes to the weak side corner constantly for open yes. threes. Um, and Kemba, you can't ask whatever, however old he is, thirty some year old Kemba, to be on his shaky knees to be crashing down and recovering and crashing down and recovering. He's eventually leaving somebody wide open because he just can't keep doing that over and over and over. Right. And I think, like, this is actually something, um, one of the reasons why I think there was a theory that, like, oh, Tibbs' scheme is outdated, right? Because the defense in Minnesota, quite frankly, wasn't good. Um, but, like, if you go back and you look at those teams now, it's like so much of the reason those defenses weren't good had nothing to do with the scheme. It had to do with the people he had executing that scheme. Like, yeah, man, if you play Jamal Crawford a ton of minutes, the defense is not going to be good because he is a terrible defender. He's a very <laughs> defender. And like you have Cat playing a lot of minutes, right? And you have Jeff Teague playing a lot of minutes. And it's like, of course your defense wasn't good because the players you had executing this scheme, which requires a ton of commitment and like a ton of communication and trust in terms of like trusting your teammates to have your back when you make a rotation and like all these kind of things, it was never going to work there. And that is why I think the defense fell off so much to start the year. And then basically once they got rid of Kemba, even though the personnel still wasn't great. And like, I don't think you, I think it's easy to say looking at the Knicks' roster that like, no, they don't have any elite defender on the team currently. And it's like, even despite that, they basically were a top five defense the moment that Kemba did not play anymore. Um, so like the scheme works. Can Donovan Mitchell execute that scheme? I don't know. I, I He physically, absolutely, 1,000% can execute the scheme. There's no question about that. That, like, physically, he is very much able to. Um, I, I think it's actually one of the frustrating things about him is that 
he's not a better defender because he's 6'3". He's very athletic. He's super strong. So even though he's giving up size, like he is somebody who can switch across multiple positions. Uh, he's yeah. got a great wing, 6'10 wingspan. Like there's no reason, like a guy that a similar build who's been a very good defender at times in his career and played on a lot of really good defenses uh, and really good teams is Eric Gordon. And Eric Gordon's not like a huge dude, but he's thick and he is just, he, he fights on defense and like, that's enough. And so like, can you get Donovan Mitchell to just do that? Like, maybe, I don't know. Like, there's no way to say yes, right? That's the thing. Like, we can't say absolutely because we haven't seen it. And to your point, like, that's not all on Mitchell because, like, the scheme in Utah, it wasn't just him, right? Like, Conley is getting beat off the dribble constantly. Joe Ingles, like, the last couple of years, getting beat off the dribble constantly. Uh, Jordan Clarkson and, like, all of these dudes, like, you know, I think Royce O'Neal got this reputation as a really good defender for no reason other than that he, like, was the only guy that could kind of keep ball handlers in front of him sometimes. You know, like, but he's not actually a particularly good defender. Um, but, like, the point is, like, I don't know about Mitch. Mitchell is just, like, very interesting in terms of you're making a very interesting bet on him. And it's, like, pretty much... And he's, I want to be very clear because I don't think he's anywhere near as good as Carmelo was when we traded for Carmelo. Um, but like, you're making a very similar bet in the sense of, okay, he's a 25 year old rising star. We're trading for him entering the peak years, prime years of his career. And yeah, he hasn't been a great defender, but we think you know, blah, 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 blah. For these reasons, he will be a better defender here and we'll improve and like all these things, right? And the Knicks, a barring one season, which was the strike year in 2011-12, they were not a good defense any year with Carmelo. And like, is that, that's not all because of Carmelo. Obviously, there's an Amari Stoudemire situation that we have to talk about. Like, there's all kinds of reasons. But the point is like, Carmelo himself is not was not an easy guy, as good as he is, as good as he was offensively, and and he and he more than Mitchell is a switchable defender, right? Like he's a much easier guy that you can switch across positions because he's bigger, like he's just a bigger dude. And even given that, and the fact that they traded for Tyson Chandler, who was an elite def- defensive center at that time, like even with all of that they really struggled to put together an elite defense or even a good defense, even an above average defense. You know, I, like the 54 win season, if you go back and the Knicks were 18th in defensive rating, like they were not a particularly good defense. They just played at the slowest pace in the league, I think. So they didn't give up a lot of points, uh, but they were a team that was strong offensively, not defensively. And but the point, like to bring it back to Mitchell is like, I think you're ultimately making the same bet that, like, okay, he's going to be worth so much offensively that we will just, we're willing to just try to figure out the defense around him somehow. And, like, is it possible? Yeah, I think so. But I promise you this, like, whatever you do, and, and if you do build a contender with Donovan Mitchell in New York, I promise you, 
Jalen Brunson is not going to be on that team. He's not going to be the starting point guard on that team. And Julius Randle is not going to be the fucking starting power forward on that team. I promise you, like, those two things I am a thousand percent sure of. Because you just cannot have those dudes with Mitchell and expect to be a good enough defense to compete. And basically, like, unless you're a top, if you're not a top 10 defense, you are almost by rule of thumb not good enough to win a championship. You're just not. Like, if you look at the mm-hmm. NBA, you basically have to be top 10 on both sides of the ball uh, to win a championship. Although, Golden State this year, very weirdly, I don't know how this wasn't discussed. They were like 18th in offensive rating or something in the regular season. Very weird. Uh, but they were an elite defense. They've always been an elite defense. Um, and they, they got had, better. They had... They had Draymond not carrying. They had Draymond not carrying. They had some Steph injuries and then no Clay. So they got, you know, getting those Draymond getting playoff carrying, which, you know, still he sucked to some degree, but he was, he was I thought he was so and bad then, offensively in the playoffs. But yeah, he was I mean, as a passer, though, and as a connector, he still does a lot, I think. And then he's just Clay really lucky getting he plays with He's very lucky he plays with Steph Curry. That's all I will say. <laughs> yeah, for sure. College football is back. It's time to enjoy the tradition, the fun, and the great offers from DraftKings Sportsbook. To celebrate the best time of the year, right now, you customers can bet just $5 on any team and get $200 in free bets instantly, win or lose. If that's not enough action, you can also place a same-game parlay for a shot at an even bigger payout. Just combine multiple bets into one, like which team will get the win, which team to score first, and more. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Bet just $5 on college football and get $200 in free bets instantly. That's code TBPN only at DraftKings Sportsbook. But yeah, there's some, there's some explanations. But yeah, you're right. It's weird. Um, but you know, we just need to get our... Uh, like you, I agree with you. We'd have to if we got Donovan Mitchell, we have to put defensive stalwarts around him, like we did with Carmelo with Amari Stoudemire, um, J.R. Smith. <laughs> um, yeah, we we did such a terrible job of building around Melo. Uh, but anyways, um, yeah, no, I'm with you about <laughs> what we need to do if we if we go after Donovan. Um, to your point, I so I watched. Um, I went back and watched the. Uh, the Utah Jazz LA Clippers series um, from a few years back uh, where Donovan Mitchell was just absolutely insane on the offensive end of the ball. And I was really interested in, was this the, was the, the, was it the Clippers series you said, or was it the, the bubble series against Denver? Oh, okay. okay. The Clippers series. Um, He was insane offensively. uh, And um, I was really interested in, I mean, watching him offensively, but defensively as well. But on the offensive side of the ball, I was interested in it because, you know, okay, you're going against Kawhi, Paul George, Pat Bev was on that team, um, Reggie Jack. Like, there was good, like, good Marcus Morris, good solid defenders basically everywhere but at the five. Um, And it was incredible how like he basically made Kawhi and Paul George look silly over and over and over again. Right. Um, on the, without much help at times. Right. Sometimes you get a screen, but just straight up, you know, um, off the dribble would embarrass 
what I think of as two of the best defenders in the NBA. Obviously, they're bigger, a little slower, so that makes it hard. Um, but still, I mean, you expect Kawhi or Paul George to be able to stay on pretty much anybody. Um, and he just was like, it was easy pickings for him. It was really, really impressive to watch. Um, on the other end of the ball, it was cool because it was, it was actually a series where he tried, um, quite a bit. There were a few plays where like he just like didn't run back and transition or whatever. But, um, to your point about him being switchable, uh, it was amazing. Um, I, I, he's such an athletic guy, um, uh, that I expected him to have no problem staying in front of guys like Paul George or Kawhi, but he actually, when he would switch onto them, would struggle to keep them in front of him. But if they went to the post and tried to like punish him using a mismatch, Kawhi could sometimes move him, you know, because he's Kawhi. But like Paul George struggled. Um, but anytime Paul George tried to just like face him up, he could beat him. Lap, uh, lap, like Donovan Mitchell didn't have the lateral quickness, even when he was trying to stay in front of those guys, which I thought was really interesting because they're neither of them are like the quickest, right? You know, they're sort of bigger wings. Um, yeah, that's not yeah. how they win, but he, they were easily beating him. So like I, I started watching a little bit more and it's kind of this interesting thing. It seems like even when he tries, he's not really good laterally, when, especially when he's moving backwards, despite as, as athletic as he is on offense. Um, and he has some trouble getting over screens and part of it, Part of it for both of these things is just it's clear he's never really probably since college put in the work on that end because his footwork is really atrocious. He, um, his stance is terrible. He's like never. Yeah. I don't even yep. think he knows how to be in his stance. It's like it's no. honestly kind of <laughs> unbelievable to watch. And and I think like I, I will say this, like we've both been really critical of Tibbs. But like one thing I think he is excellent at is getting guys to especially guys he gets earlier in their careers but like getting them to execute the fundamentals necessary for his scheme um i think he's been really good at that throughout his time as a head coach uh i think like maybe wiggins is probably the one guy he didn't do well enough with but that might have just i wiggins is so weird that might have really just been like some motivational thing. Like, I really think that he needed to be traded to kind of like get a wake up call. Um, but like, if you look at quickly, RJ, um, you know, even somebody like Obi, but like, these are guys quickly was actually a really good defender in college, but he's, he's 1000% improved in the NBA. Um, yes. RJ has gotten a lot better on defense. He took a step back last year, but I also think like, People went overboard with how much of a step back he took. It, it wasn't as significant as people are imagining. Um, and Obi, I mean, his progression defensively has been honestly like tremendous, way, way better than I anticipated. Which isn't to say he's an amazing defender, but like he's at least a neutral now. I think overall. Um, but like those are just three guys off the top of my head that you know Tibbs has had in New York and they have developed under him, right, for two years. And they've become better defenders. But, like, you know, you talked about Mitchell. Like, the stuff that Mitchell struggles at, like, I, the lateral quickness stuff, that's just a physical limitation. I don't think he's, like, a laterally, he's just not that quick, side to side. But, like, the, the shitty stance, not understanding how to navigate over a screen, and not being willing to fight or, or navigate over a screen, those are, to me, about coaching to a large extent. And it's, like, 
if you let a guy get away with that from a younger age, then he's just like, you know, why would he not, like, he's going to always try to get away with it, right? And if there's, like, the concern with Mitch, with Tibbs coaching somebody like Mitchell in terms of, like, getting more out of him defensively, so there's two sides to the coin, right? There's the stuff that I just said about the young guys, like, who have 100% improved, and if you go back to, like, his time in Chicago, guys like Derek Rose, even somebody like Boozer, who was not a good defender, um, you know, Butler, Luol Deng, all these guys got better defensively under Tibbs. Even Joakim Noah, like, he was always a good defender, but he got way better under Tibbs, right? Yeah. One defensive player. But, like, the other concern, the flip side of this, is how Tibbs managed his proverbial star, how, how he's managed a lot of his proverbial stars. In particular, you look at somebody like Julius Randle last year, where he didn't hold him accountable on defense Probably in large part because he's like, well, he's just doing so much offensively. Like, I got to cut him some slack. I'm not going to get on him about this shit. But, like, if you don't, if that's how he handles that, then it is a little bit of a concern. I don't mean, it's, it is a, it's a meaningful concern to have about, like, well, if we're making this big bet on Donovan Mitchell, that, like, we're going to get him, you know, to, to really compete and contribute defensively, like, are we sure that Tibbs is the guy to do it? Because there's two, like I said, there's two sides to that coin. Where like there's evidence of Tibbs, a lot of evidence of Tibbs getting a shit ton out of guys defensively and improving them. I mean, even if you look at somebody like Alec Burks or Reggie Bullock, right in New York, like those guys were not anything special defensively before they got to New York, and they weren't special in New York. But he got them to just be so fucking good at executing to scheme and committing and constantly like. So much of defense is just like consistently doing really boring, mundane shit that is annoying as fuck to do and doing it every single time down the court. Like that's so much of NBA defense. And those guys did that and they were they were contributors to a really good defense in New York. Like so there's evidence of like he can really take average personnel and mold them into a unit that punches above its weight. Um, but like we also have the evidence of the Julius Randle of it all, right? Where it's like he doesn't want to get on the star guy, and that has a trickle down effect that is that can be really devastating at times. Yeah, and another example of the star would be I think Cat had some of that in um, Minnesota, and it you know Jimmy was pissed off about <laughs> about a lot of that. But um, so yeah, to your point, I actually this is actually a reason that I think I'm higher on what the team would be next year if we got Donovan Mitchell and it was Brunson and still Randall and RJ and Mitch or whatever, um, because I do think, so like, I'm, I, I'm not really that worried about Donovan Mitchell trying year one, you know, like you get to a new job, new city, like new lights, new pressure, new focus, new environment, like people usually, and Tibbs, right. You try, it's good. Like you, you want to impress, you want to be, you know, you want to get in on the good side when you go to a new place, all that sort of stuff happens. Um, for basically everybody. And I think it would happen for Donovan Mitchell. Um, and there's the Tibbs bump. But I think, I mean, and who knows how long Tibbs is here for, right? But I think Tibbs gets these first-year bumps and sometimes second-year bumps. But it's really hard, I think. And maybe some of this is what was going on with um, both RJ and Randall a little bit last year. Um, maybe more Randall than RJ. Uh, but it's really hard to get into year two year three, year four, and still be giving 
the intense, insane uh, focus and intensity and effort for 40 minutes a night, night in and night out for a Tibbs coach team, right? Like um, 82 games a season. Uh, and th- I mean, you know, people have talked about, you know, maybe Tibbs teams lose some steam when they get to the end of the season and get to playoffs because of how much he demands of them early on. And I think there's something to that. Although I think um, maybe more of them losing steam has to do with some of his inflexibility when he gets to the playoffs where you just have to be flexible um, unless you're just absolutely the best at what you do, which he hasn't really had a team like that um, outside of maybe, maybe those early, some of those early Chicago teams were the best at some things, but anyways. um, uh, 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 So guys get, just get exhausted. And I think doing it, Year after year after year, it's really easy to get those bumps, you know, year one or year two. But as it goes on, like outside of in the modern NBA, like what teams consistently outside of like Miami are just like, you know, every single year they're going to be this intense, like, you know, like there's fluctuations. Teams are better than they're worse, then they're better than they're worse. I think in the regular season, at least, it's just really hard to demand that of players and to require it of them. And I think actually it can be end up being detrimental long-term. But all that to say, I do actually think we probably have a Donovan Mitchell, like a good Donovan Mitchell next year next year if he um, was a Nick. I bet we'd get a Tibbs bump, and I bet we'd get a new City bump, um, and I think he would be good. But now going back to the other thing you were talking about, the inflexibility, Tibbs never changing his, his scheme. If you put... so. I actually am a little higher on Jalen Brunson as a defender, I think, than the average Nick fan, maybe, um, or what I've seen people talking about. Um, but as people have rightly noted, his weakness is really navigating screens. He struggles to stay connected a little bit. Um, so if you put uh, Donovan Mitchell, uh, Jalen Brunson, and Julius Randle on the floor together, those are three guys who are terrible at pick-and-roll defense, right? Like, uh, especially Donovan Mitchell and Julius Randle. Um, and Brunson, Brunson's going to give you the effort every time. Um, but just, you know, he has some limitations there, but, uh, the other two are just flat out bad pick and roll defenders. Um, especially if you're in a drop scheme, right? Because Donovan Mitchell is not staying connected, going over screens and Julius Randall is not doing anything as a drop defender. His technique's terrible. His arms are short. He doesn't jump to defend shots. He can't keep two guys in front of him. Um, just on and on. So you're going to have three bad drop defenders and then exclusively play drop. Um, that, that's not a great, that's not a great recipe. Uh, but like, as you were noting, I, th- I think like in terms of regular season, um, you know, Donovan Mitchell, Donovan Mitchell, as you were noting, is a pretty good switch defender. So I think in terms of regular season, actually playing a more aggressive style, like of switching one through four or something, and just having Mitch drop would be more effective uh, if you're going to have Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brunson, and Julius Randle. Because Julius Randle is a good switch defender if he is locked in, right? Um, he's much better at that than he is at... He, it's the most goal. annoying thing. It's the most, most, single most annoying, frustrating thing about him. Because when he's locked in, like he should be a top 10, 15 defender in the NBA. Like... Yeah. He's that elite. Well, it, it's still scheme dependent. Are, it's it's still scheme dependent. Sure, but if you if you just had him switch more and like he's committed, like his feet for a guy his size is just freaky. Like 
the the fun comparison kind of like when Zion got drafted, right? It was he was like he's a better version of Julius with hops and all these kind of things. And like obviously offensively, like there's they're not even playing the same sport, right? Like Zion is when he's right, he's doing shit that like it just makes no sense. Um but like defensively he has better feet than Zion. Like he's yeah. way quicker side to side laterally. And the other thing with him is like who's bullying Julius Randle? You know what I mean? Like yeah. because if you switch him out onto a perimeter player, and we've seen this when we've played Boston a few times, especially uh during his kind of like most improved player season. But I remember like they would they would like and, and Tibbs, to be to be fair to him, I don't know if you agree with this. I do think he s- switches more in New York than he did in Minnesota. Even though, like, I still don't think we switch quite enough. Um, but like, he is he. I think we switch a lot more frequently in end of clock spots. And I remember mm-hmm. like seeing times where Boston would get a late switch of like Tatum on Julius and he would try to take him off the bounce. And like, I mean, look, we can talk about Jason Tatum's interesting ball handling. Um, but like <laughs> he just couldn't go anywhere. And he also, Jason Tatum struggles to bully like RJ Barrett. Now forget RJ and put Julius there. Like he had no chance, you know? So like, it, it's the single most frustrating thing about him because if he really was locked in, he could be like a weapon defensively, to be honest. He, he's, he has that ability. It's just like extremely frustrating that barring that most improved player season, he just has not really shown that he gives enough of a fuck at all on defense. Uh, yeah, I think the way we would talk about Julius Randle, if he came up on like the Rockets, switch everything, Harden, you know, Eric Gordon, whatever, PJ Tucker defense um, would be radically different. I think, I think, not only does he, he's just so bad. It's funny because he's so bad at drop defense and so good at switch defense. It's, it's really weird. Um, but no coach has put him as like, okay, we're just going to, we're going to have Julius Randle switch actions. Um, anytime you're going to scream with Julius Randle switch or like no coach has done that. Um, I don't see Tibbs being the one, but I, I mean, I do think we could actually have a decent regular season defense if you switched because Brunson is also very strong. Like, I'm not too worried about, you know, um, guys isolating Brunson. Uh, uh, certainly not worried about them posting up, you know, Brunson or Donovan Mitchell. Um, maybe Donovan Mitchell on the perimeter I would worry about. And I'm not worried about Julius switching on to anybody, basically. Julius, I only worry about when he's off the ball and has to help <laughs> um, or when he's in drop defense. Um, so I think, you know, I think you could have a decent regular season defense with those guys, not like top 10 or anything, but like, you know, maybe in that 15 to 20 range or something, if you were committed to switching one through four with Mitch cleaning things up, um, now it sustaining when you get to the playoffs, I think is a lot harder because one of the reasons why, you know, switch defenses in the regular season are kind of like a cheat code because you often encourage teams to isolate, which is... Uh, unless you're Kawhi or Donovan Mitchell or Steph Curry or whatever, right? Usually a bad shot for the offense. Um, well, even for those uh, guys, like ISO, ISOs in general are just like a lower efficiency play type. It's the lowest efficient. I think ISO and post up are the two lowest efficiency play types. Yep. But once you get into the playoffs and 
offense usually takes a step back as defensive intensity increases. And then you can get, you know, repeated instances of, you know, like LeBron on Steph or whatever. Like you keep trying to get that switch or you keep trying to get whatever the, whatever the switch is, you know, like, so if you get Donovan Mitchell repeatedly on, um, whoever it like, so, uh, I, I don't think we would, we just would have to send help if it was like Giannis or something, but like Jimmy Butler or somebody, you know, um, something like that, whoever that guy is, they're going to eat a little bit more, uh, than in the regular season when you're not facing, you know, the, the same level of score at night in and night out. Cause some nights you play Charlotte and some nights you play, you know, Detroit or whatever, as opposed to <laughs> golden state or, uh, yeah, you get, you get the idea, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, do you have other thoughts? What What else about? I feel like we talked a lot about Donovan Mitchell. You said you had some like cool thing about uh, evaluating the players on the Knicks. Yeah, yeah, we'll 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 do that. Um, I <laughs> I I want to just like the the Mitchell thing is interesting. Um, and then it it ties to me into just like you know you talked a bit about Brunson, and you're not worried about him overall, but, like, obviously as the playoffs go on, that becomes a bigger issue. I mean, that's... So that's, like, what I I think is really interesting, and this happens in, like, every sport, right? So, if you're a bad team, in any sport, if you're a bad team, you have to, like, get better players, but those better players, they might not be on your team forever. They might just be guys who help you take incremental steps, right? So, like, you go from dog shit to average, to good, to championship contender that requires upgrades in personnel. Um, and there are guys who will cycle in and out. And so, like, what I guess ultimately is the thing is, like, you know, and this is what the front office needs to weigh, is what is the price to get Donovan Mitchell in New York with the knowledge? And this has to be understood. Like, this has to be understood at a very basic level. With the understanding that ultimately down the line, be it in a year, two years, whatever it is, you are going to have to break up Brunson and Mitchell because you are not going to win a championship if that is your starting backcourt. You're just not. Like it's it's not like a controversial statement. It's not even particularly an indictment on either of them. Um, it's just a fact. Like you're just not gonna do it. And so like if like I, I do. I wonder if like that is something they think about internally, um, not in the short term. Because I don't. I don't think you need to like. Look, if you trade for Donovan Mitchell now, it's not a big crisis to me. If like the Knicks make the playoffs, but those guys get exposed defensively in a series or something, right? That, that's just like that's fine. Like that's part of the process, and that's kind of a thing that you should expect going in. But it's like, at what point are you willing to break that up and make a move? Um, and I'm assuming if you trade for Mitchell, he is not the guy that would ultimately make way uh, if you had to pick between them, you know? So, like, and if that price, like, what is that price to get Mitchell? And where does that future decision you're going to have to make, where does that factor into, like, what you're willing to give up? Uh, I think that's really interesting to think about, and and I wonder how much that weighs on their choice ultimately. 
Yeah, because you could think like, okay, maybe, you know, if we don't have in the future four unprotected picks after getting Donovan or whatever that we can use in a star trade. But if we have, like, if we could do Brunson and Grimes or Brunson and Obi or Brunson and Quickly or Brunson and RJ or whatever, you know, maybe that plus some picks looks actually pretty appealing to a team who's get, you know, their star has asked out um, because you have, like, maybe a promising, a promising up and coming guy and a guy who's a little more established as a really good player in Brunson plus some draft capital or something. Maybe they think about stuff like that. I don't know. Um, one thing interesting to me about the Mitchell Brunson fit that I think hasn't been talked about as much either is their, their offensive fit actually to me seems pretty bad. Like not like not bad, like there'll be a bad offense, but they just don't, complement each other very much um i really liked you had Cranjus on um and he was sort of talking about this uh from like what his data shows um but the film seems to show it too uh they're really similar offensive players except they're the most radically different offensive players but they like they they play very similarly with very different skill sets so like donovan mitchell is obviously you know a super abrupt and radically athletic guy who gets to the paint in his own way or whatever um but uh and and you know and Jalen Brunson's a little a little more slow and a little more pivot happy and has awesome footwork and gets into the paint his own way um but both of them are guys who are like when they have the ball it's sort of like 70% score 30% pass kind of is where their sliders are set to you know and they're both very much looking to score first and they're both really good at it um they both sort of get their own shots both of them are uh well i'd say donovan mitchell is a phenomenal passer when it comes to tools but when it comes to his vision not very good and his decision making not very good uh, but his tools are like incredible as a passer um and then i'd say with jalen brunson like uh you know playmaking decision making not the best it's not you know the worst thing i've ever seen but not the best uh, passing tools way worse than than Donovan's, but he makes like safe passes and good passes, you know. Um, uh, but neither of them are are really elevating anyone else's game um, in a certain sort of way when they're on the court offensively, because they both, you know, they get the ball, they're going to do their thing, and they're both really efficient and they're going to score. But it's not like they're setting up teammates. It's not like either of them is a really great catch and shoot guy or a motion shooter. I mean, well, I should say Donovan's a good catch and shoot guy, but he just, he sort of has the Julius Randle thing um, sometimes where he doesn't always take catch and shoot shots for whatever reason. He likes to work a little bit, which is fine with him because he's so efficient no matter what he does. Um, he still ends up putting up these crazy efficient shots. So it's like not, a, it's not a big deal. You're like, oh, he didn't take the open three, but he got a dunk. Cool. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, or, oh, he did take the open three, but he hit a step back three. So whatever. I'm not, I'm not, uh, bummed about it. Um, but neither of them are like, you know, they're not, uh, I, they're not like these massive off ball space creators. They're not really like quickly moving the ball in the offense. Like I do think Brunson's a little bit quicker of a decision maker, but they're not like, um, you know, they're not connectors, really. They're guys who score the ball, and they score the ball well. But there's this, like, it's. it reminds me a little bit of, like, the backcourt version of what Kawhi and Paul George are together on offense, where, like, 
it really is, if you watch the Clippers offense, it's sort of like, a, okay, it's my turn, now it's your turn, now it's my turn, now it's your turn. And, I mean, it's Paul George and Kawhi, so, like, they're obviously awesome. But they don't really complement each other, you know? Or they don't really, like, raise each other's offensive games or the offensive games of the rest of the team, right? It's sort of like, what, however good Kawhi is and however good Paul George is, that's how good the offense is. And I think it would have something similar, like, however good Donovan is and however good Jalen is, well, that's how good the offense is. And those guys are both really, I mean, they're really good scorers, so it'll probably be pretty good, but you're not going to unlock, like, those, like, you know, higher upside outcomes that you can you can get sometimes when you just, like, put the right sort of connectors together. And uh, maybe that's not the end of the world, but <laughs> to, to me, it's it's a little bit sad because I, I those sorts of offenses are, like, uh, the ones where, where you get those higher level outcomes from, you know, um, putting a bunch of, like, connectors and smart passers and guys who just know how to move with and without the ball um, together, uh, like those Spurs teams or those Warriors teams or whatever, uh, are, are just so fun to me. Uh, but anyways, I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Um, I mean, I, I, I tend to agree that they're not, like, a, an awesome, like, super complimentary fit. But, like, I also don't think they get in each other's way um like yeah the, the reality that's, is that's the rea- the the reality is like it, it the offense will be very this is this is just how it's going to be with uh, with Tibbs as long as he's here but like Tibbs's offense effectively if you really just want to boil it down to like what is it right it is all about getting who he perceives are his best offensive players on the court at the time, get them into a situation that he feels is advantageous to them. So he's effectively just trying to create like 1v1 or 2v2 situations constantly. Like that's all he's trying to do offensively. He's not trying to like set up some flowing five-man action. There's not a lot of off-ball stuff going on with decoys and all this shit. Like, it's very straightforward. It's very much just like, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to keep doing it. He's like, he spams, right? He just spams the same plays over and over and over again. Um, Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I'm curious about your, your thoughts on it, because like, I think his, his, part of his reason for doing it is what you said, is like you just want the star to have the ball in their hands. Um, a lot, or your best player. But another reason I think is like um, he cares a lot about offensive rebounds, and he cares a lot about getting back in transition. So yeah, I think by having part of it. Yeah. So if you have your yeah turnovers and getting back in transition, so those three things, I guess, yeah, offensive rebounding, limiting turnovers, and getting back in transition. So if you have your big man um, under the hoop and not out you know, screening all over the place, he's more likely to get to get offensive rebounds. And if you have your wing players um, or those guys who are off the ball stationary um, in their spots, they can start leaking back in defensive transition, right? Um, and they're always in the same place. So they know where they are. They know, they know their lane to get back into cover. Um, and then, yeah, you limit tr- turnovers. So I'm always curious because I think it does limit your offensive upside, but you do get other things back. So I'm curious if you have thoughts on that or like uh, how you weigh those things, the, the limited, the worst offense, but getting those three things um, being a little better in those areas 
versus having a more imaginative, better offense, but maybe sacrificing in those? Do you value it one way or the other? Or you like think Tibbs, Tibbs' decision is defensible? Or what are your views? I mean, I think it's defensible, but I also think you have to adapt more. You like you have to have more to your offense than what he's demonstrated he does have. Like, I think it to win with the type of offense he has, you're going to need like you just need so much individual shot creation and talent. And like, I know that's. It's stupid to say that because basically like any team that wins needs to have those things, but you really need an overwhelming amount with how limited like you don't get easy shots in a Tibbs offense. Right? Like he's not producing he's not running guys open enough to get them easy shots. Like if you just look at the shit that Evan had to do this year, right? Fournier. Like whatever people want to say about him, you know, his limitations and shit the Knicks trade him and all these kind of things, like He's a good offensive player. Like he, he's a good scorer. He did. He had to work so hard to get any of his shots this year. Like they were all super difficult. I would venture to guess he probably had some of the most difficult shot quality in the entire NBA. Um, and it's because like they don't use him in any way. Like they, there's no opportunities within like what we're trying to do offensively to get easy shots. You know, like if you just look at like how many quick shots do the Knicks get like early in the clock, open threes, whatever it is like, there's just so little because everything is so slow. It's such a grind. Um, I, I don't, and it's crazy because Fournier, Fournier, you have Fournier Grimes in quickly and you're not doing any, you're not having them. (laughs) You're having Fournier like shoot off the dribble fadeaway corner threes, as opposed to like trying to run him off some actions or something. Yeah. It's kind of, it's wild. Yeah, it's it's pretty weird. Um, and like, I don't think it's. I, I think everything you said is true, like about the offensive rebounding and getting back in transition and all these things. Like, um, they're they're part of it. Uh, but like, it's just it's it's too whatever the 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 reasoning is and the pros of his approach. It's pretty obvious to me that it's like too much in that direction. Like, there should be more of a. Uh, I guess like a a push to adapt offensively a bit more, like at a very basic level, try to incorporate more warriors type of like actions. Right. And obviously you don't have Steph, you don't have Draymond. I'm not saying you can copy that, but the principles of like keeping your whole team engaged on offensive possessions, play to play. Right. Like, because I mean, I think Steve Kerr's even talked about this where he's like, I can like Steph can, I could run pie pick and roll with him 15 times, like 35 times a game and our offense would be wonderful. But like, what is that doing for everybody else in the court? And I do think there's some of that, like you need to keep guys engaged and and there's value to that for reasons um, that are like both intangible in terms of like, it helps guys stay locked in when they feel like they're part of something offensively. Um, And it's also for reasons of like, yeah, I mean, if you have off-ball actions, it makes it a lot harder for a defense to just key in on the ball. And like that, I think, is the main issue with what Tibbs is always trying to achieve offensively in terms of just like finding a way to create a mismatch or an advantageous opportunity to just like throw the ball to his best offensive player at a standstill 
and let them cook, right? Like that's basically what he wants the offense to do. But that makes it so easy for a defense to key in on that player. And I think that's a reason why so many leads were blown this past year. Um, because like the thing is bad offense leads to bad defense. Right? Like that's a reality. So when the defense collapses in the fourth quarter, a lot of that is because you're putting so much pressure on yourself because you're not generating anything offensively other than like really shitty isolations, essentially. Um and you know, like when we had Derek Rose healthy the year before, that you could get away with it more because he's just he's still like it's kind of crazy how good he still is despite all the injuries and stuff like he's still extremely he's an extremely tough cover there are very few guys who can to this day that can keep him in front of them um he's just like he makes that very basic concept of Tibbs's offense work well enough um but like that's not really I mean, Mitchell Mitchell will help, right? If they get Mitchell, Mitchell can make that work too. But like, that's not ultimately good enough to ultimately be, to, to get to where you want to be, which is like an offense worthy of a contender, right? Um, so like, I, I don't know. I think I get the reasoning. It's just tough. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, we'll see. I, I, I would like to see Tibbs adapt more, but I don't know, man. I I, I have a tough time. I, I, I buy him being willing more, like being more willing to adapt defensively. And I do think there's evidence of like, if he has guys he think are better suited to switch more, he will switch more. Like we saw that with when he played Jericho Sims, right? Like not just switching, but also like trapping and hedging and like, Doing doing things that he does not do with Mitch, right? So like I think yep. there's evidence of like he's willing to adapt defensively a bit more, and mm-hmm. and his base defense is already so good to me that like I don't really care that much about his at like his unwillingness to adapt defensively to an extent. You know, well, like, uh, like even so the Hawk I don't care about series, it. Like even Go the ahead, Hawk sorry. series, like I I know that like Trey Young and like we the the defense got a lot of blame for like whatever happened in that series. I'm pretty sure if you look at the stats though, I think they held Atlanta under what their offensive rating was in the regular season. Um it to me like like yes Trey Young did have some really great moments in that series against us, but the offense was the way bigger issue to me. Where it's like not only are you like that was an offensively deficient team in terms of the talent they had at their disposal, but it was exacerbated because one playoff defenses are obviously much more locked in possession of possession and just understanding tendencies and what you're trying to achieve. Like they're way more locked in, but two, you're exacerbating it because you're just, there's no creativity. There's no, we're going to try something else. Like, he he adapted way too late defensively in that series to like truly have an impact, but like he did switch a bit more with Julius as the series went on. He did put different defenders on Trey Young and not just Reggie Bullock, who was fucking awful in that series, by the way. Um, but like, I, I think there's enough evidence where 
I can kind of buy like okay, he he might actually like be willing to to try different shit in a play, playoff setting defensively, but uh, offensively, I don't, I don't I don't I don't think there's anything. I don't think off like I just don't see it def- offensively at all. Like there's there's not even to me anything to give me hope. Like defensively, like maybe I'm wrong, but I can I've seen enough where it's like he'll have Hodge switch. He's had Jericho Sims switch. Like. I've seen enough where I'm like, okay, maybe it is a personnel thing, and this is just how he evaluates the various big guys and wings and guards and like what he thinks they're capable of. Maybe there's some of that, but like offensively, I don't think it really matters what personnel you give him. He is going to do the same things all the time, no matter what. Like there, there's just not really any evidence throughout his career that he's willing to. Like the only thing he's really changed is understanding that like you need to take more threes that's about it yeah yeah i agree with you probably the offense is a bigger uh a bigger issue i'm less i'm less optimistic about him being flexible on defense i do agree we saw some with the young guys last year um but i'm just i'm very skeptical that if we got to the playoffs he would go to any of those (laughs) defenses um you know even the red even putting reggie on trey young he didn't do that to the last game um you know, and Trey was having awesome, awesome success against, uh, you know, the 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 wonderful other players he was putting on him. Um, <laughs> started starting with Alfred Payton, who he, he I, this, I mean, and that's just another insane thing that Alfred Payton was still starting as we are playing a playoff game. Um, but anyways, uh, and it just speaks to how slow he is to to change. But I think when it comes to um, defenses and when it gets to the playoffs. Um, you have to basically either be the best at what you do or you have to be flexible. Because if you're the best at what you do, so I think of like the Milwaukee team from two years ago was like just the absolute best version of a drop defense you can be basically. Um, you know, great rim protection at the five. Awesome. Helps, you know, helps having help. Giannis. Giannis as a weak side health protector, <laughs> rim protector is it like helps. a cheat code. Makes, makes it a little it easy. Yeah, it makes it a little easy. And yeah, and then you have a long wing in Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday at the point of attack going around screen. Like it's like the best version you could have of a drop defense. So you can withstand almost anybody you play and still play your defense and be okay. But most teams aren't that good on defense. Um, and so if you're going to handle, you know, um, uh, Tatum one night, Trey Young the next series or whatever, and or probably the other way around, Trey Young the first series, and Tatum the next series. Um, you're you you have to be flexible, and you usually can't just do the same defense over and over because teams are going to beat you, and they're going to find ways to exploit it. And if you're not the best at it, you have to find ways of. Uh, compensating or attacking their weaknesses in new ways. So I think of like, you know, like the super flexible teams are like teams like the Raptors uh, when they won their championship or Miami the last couple of years has been flexible going in and out of defenses this year. You know, obviously they had their base scheme, which is relatively aggressive. Either they like to, um, I mean, often blitz, but uh, this, this year, I noticed, for example, um, in the Sixers series, they started off switching everything, and then uh, the Sixers were beating that repeatedly. 
by getting um, Embiid mismatches, obviously, unlike small guys, not having Bam on him, he was able to score pretty easily. There were some ridiculous sequences where Harden would be like, oh, you know, I see Embiid got like Tyler Harrow on him, but I'm going to try to take Bam because I got the switch. Like, no, you dumb, you got, <laughs> you got fucking Harrow on uh, Joel Embiid, give him the ball. But anyways, they finally were starting to beat that. And so um, Spolstra in the next game came back and was not having Bam switch off Embiid. And you, so you see that sort of flexibility. Um, and then the Sixers offense really was struggling to find advantages in the same sort of way once they made that switch. Um, now, I don't know that we saw enough, like there wasn't enough time to really see what could have happened, I think, because Embiid just was so beat up that series that you couldn't really see, you know, adjustments and all that because he just wasn't himself, especially going on. But I thought it was like, you know, that's the sort of thing you have to be able to do you have to have that flexibility. Um, in the playoffs, you're going to have teams scheming to beat your base schemes. And if you're not the very best at it, probably one of the teams in one of the series is going to be able to beat it. And if you're not able to f- flex and change and move to something else relatively quickly, your series is going to be over because you don't, ha- you don't have a lot of time. You've got to make the change, you know? Like, I was even thinking at times on a little critical of Spolstra, for waiting an entire game to make the change when I like, I was like, they're and beat is getting these easy switches. Like you got to make, you know, um, because when you're in their playoffs, you can't, you can lose four. That's all. I mean, that's all you got. So you got to make the, the change of switch. And I just, I don't believe, I mean, I'm totally with you on the offensive end. Um, I don't believe in tips to, you know, to, to people. I mean, he couldn't come up with ideas against the Hawks. I I'm absolutely with you. Our offensive talent was not good. Um, but essentially he was just getting beat by the defense he invented in Chicago, the flood, the strong side defense. And there are counters to this defense that have been invented for years. I mean, they've been around for 15 years now, um, the counters to it. And there's no way Tibbs is not aware of them, but they're just not the, uh, sort of things he likes to do, right? Like screening the, um, setting off-ball screens on the weak side defender who's flooding the strong side to get try to get an open corner three or an open three on the wing on the uh, on the weak side, right? On the opposite side of the ball, that sort of thing. And we just didn't, we didn't even try it. So we were just letting them flood the strong side. Julius is looking at three defenders um, as other and, and guys look, are just standing and, stationary. And it was just, te- oh, it was just ugly. And it's also just like, Julius is struggling. You need to do something as a coach to like help him out, you know. Um, and trust me, I this is not a uh, a defense of Julius Randall. But like, <laughs> if a player is struggling, it doesn't matter who it is. If a player is struggling, you need to help them out, or you just need to like take the ball out of their hands. You know, like it's not rocket science. You know, like you're trying to win the game, right? So. Stop giving the ball and having the guy who's clearly in his own head, who's really struggling, stop giving him the ball and just having him, like, telling him to be fucking LeBron James. You know, like, that's just not how this works. Um, Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to get too much into that, but, like, I I do think, yeah, like, I, I, the tip stuff is just really interesting, like, because he's clearly, like, a smart coach, and I don't, I don't watch us or, like, hear him talk and think like he doesn't understand the league like you if you listened to Fisdale 
it was obvious he had no idea what he was talking about as a coach. Like he clearly <laughs> did not get it. You know, like he he just didn't get it. Um, Tibbs, I, I think he's smart. Like I think he totally gets it. I also just think he's a really stubborn dude, and for him, it's like it's almost like he wants to win, but he wants to win his way, and he can't even think that like another way would work uh in a lot in a lot of ways like he, he's just he's so stubborn um and it's like which honestly, is wild because like teams win all the time with other in other ways than the tibbs way right we just saw the warriors win the whole freaking championship so the fact that he can't see that other ways could work uh is insane well it's it's also just like he um he doesn't. How do I want? He really like the the sum of it. He, he's only creative when he has to be creative, which is like really annoying. But th- there's a lot of Jeff Van Gundy to him as a coach. Um, who like in terms of the offense, like if you watch the '99 Knicks and you watch our Knicks from this past year, offensively, like. Not a whole lot is different, you know. Like it's very basic, trying to find isolations and trying to just space the floor as best you can to to make the the player who you're trying to isolate to make his reads easier. Be it as far as you know, spraying a pass out to a shooter or just getting to the rim or whatever it is. Um, it's all about like simplifying decision trees offensively for tips it's like Mm -hmm. i don't want you to have 30 options i want you to have two options that's it like i don't want you to have multiple options i want you to just have these like i want you to do one of two things and that's it you know uh and that's why like i think he always talks about making rim reads right like oh like when guys crash down you got to spray out to the shooter like and it's like yeah that's totally what you have to do but as a coach, like, especially when you get against better defenses, like you need to be able to do more than just like, it's gotta be about more than like, this is what we do. And we're just going to execute better. Like, because to Tibbs, I think when things fail, it's not about, Oh, I need to like adapt or I need to change something. It's all about like, we just need to execute better. We need to execute harder. We need to like do this thing but just do it more efficiently, more effectively versus like, well, maybe we should try this other thing. You know, it's, it's never about trying something else. It's just about doing what you do, but doing it better. Um, and I think like, ultimately that's, that is his primary limitation as a coach. Um, you know, it, it, it's maybe, maybe it's he didn't yell OB loud enough. Yeah. Right. It's like, he, he's, OB, OB. <laughs> Obi, uh, but like that's, that's 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 really like what it is, um, and it's it's frustrating because again, like I I don't think he's full of shit when he's talking. Like I think he totally understands the game. Um, you know, like when he talks about like other teams going five out and the value that it has and all these things. Like I I don't think it's bullshit. Like I I he gets it, but at the same time, he's also like. I just can't do it because I got to have my rim protector. You know, like I got to have my seven footer 
who is just going to protect the rim, even if he does nothing offensively beyond vertical rim running, right? Like, I don't, I just, I can't value going five out more than I value, like, having that kind of safety blanket on defense. And, you know, I can't value trying to use, um, like, trying to run something off the ball offensively because that might lead to a turnover. And I don't value that upside of that more than I just value, like, knowing that if I give the ball to Derrick Rose in an isolation, he will get a shot up. I know I will get a shot up, right? Like, that's, he, he just can't bring himself to to kind of, like, make those adjustments. And I think ultimately, like, that's probably why he will eventually, ultimately get fired in New York at some point. Um, you know, like, look, it's fine. Like, he's, I think he's a average-ish coach on aggregate. Um, probably slightly above average, to be honest. If you just look overall, like, I think he's, you don't win as much as he's won as a total accident or, like, luck. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think, I don't subscribe to that idea. I think he's definitely a value-add coach to a certain degree. But it's like, at a certain point, he he just hits a, he hits a ceiling. And, um, you know, you can add talent and help him out, but, like, I don't, I think I, I've seen enough from Tibbs now at this point where I just don't think that there's a world where he's leading a championship team as a coach. But again, like, we talked about this with regard to training for Donovan Mitchell. Um, that's okay. Like, certain coaches are good for certain purposes, and then you have to find a coach who helps you take the next step. And so, like, I think it's fine if Tibbs, like, ultimately, if we fire Tibbs, like, it's okay if Tibbs is j- just happens to be the coach before the hopefully, you know, ultimate championship winning coach. Um, obviously, like, Golden State being a prime example of this, like, I don't think Mark, Mark Jackson is, I wouldn't hire him, but so much of that has nothing to do with with basketball. Um, but, like, I don't think he was a terrible coach. I think he just, there is always going to be a ceiling with his, how he deployed his talent. And, like, that's what it is with Tibbs, where it's like, if Tibbs was at, in Golden State, right, they would still be a really good team. Their defense would probably still be great. It'd probably be fucking fantastic, their defense. But their offense would not be as good, and there would be a limitation of, like, how far they could go because of that. Yeah, that seems right. Or he would at least he'd cap their ceiling below what it actually yeah. is. Um, well, yeah, that, yeah, that, another that's bit... yeah, for sure. Yeah. Another big issue, I think, for Tibbs is, we, I mean, we started talking about this, but like player evaluation, I think like the bare minimum like requirement for an NBA coach is you have to get your best players on the floor. <laughs> um, and Tibbs, for being a guy who wants to ride his best players, uh, often just struggles to identify who they are um, and fails to put them on the court. And we have just countless examples in New York. There are examples in Minnesota too. Um, so that's, I mean, that's another thing too, where just like, uh, uh, and, and, and then his stubbornness comes out there too, like where he eventually, like with the El- Alfred Payton thing, it was clear that he recognized his mistake as he was like ridiculously limiting Alfred's minutes as the season went on, like where to the point where he would play like the first quarter and then was like not playing in the second half or barely playing in the second half, you know, but then 
even despite him recognizing that, he just couldn't change shit up until after we got beat in game one, which was actually a winnable game one, too, um, with Elfin Payton just absolutely being garbage in the first, like, six minutes, giving up multiple wide-open layups, not running back. Like, it was absolutely the most... Like, it was just a terrible performance. And it was all on... I mean, it was on Tibbs. He's the one who... In the playoffs. Anyways, he, so... He, he played, but, he played Elf both, both halves in game one, right? Um, you know, I don't remember. I don't remember if he, I don't think he came out in the second half. I don't... I don't think he played in this. I don't know. I don't remember. But I remember the first quarter was just so bad. So bad. Like, there were multiple transition layups that the Hawks got as a result of Alfred, as a result of Alfred Payton, either turning the ball over or not running back on defense and just not trying. Um, and he was just like, I felt bad for, I mean, at that point, Alfred, I mean, on one hand, like you got to be a professional, but on the other hand, like he was just in a terrible, put in a terrible position, obviously wasn't the best player for the, for the job, uh, yet was still being put out there. Even though like fans hated it. It was, it was just, it wasn't good. But anyways, um, I was talking to uh, Miranda, Matt Miranda, the other day, professor, um, and uh, we were talking about like if if Kyrie and KD had come to the Knicks, and it really made it clear when we were talking about that, like actually, this is sort of to your point that you're just making, like the value of Tibbs, because like imagine getting them before we got like Tibbs and Leon. Like, I think that would have been absolutely horrendous, right? It would have gone so poorly. But, like, both Leon and Tibbs in their own different ways and in different roles have brought a sort of organizational structure and strength um, where I feel like you could bring in guys. Like, you could bring in, you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe KD and Kyrie are particularly, no matter what, it's going to go bad or it's going to be hard. But, like... um, uh, I feel like we have the organizational structure and strength that could withstand things like that, where we did not have that before uh, Leon and Tibbs. And they they really instilled that, and they instilled a certain type of culture. And of course, bringing in a new coach is going to change some of that. But I think it actually got us to a level of like prof- professionalism. Like if we, for example, were the, 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 the three, Knicks are not the, the Knicks are not they're not a joke. Like. They're not good. Yeah. They're not like a dominant team or anything. And obviously, they have a lot of work to do. But I don't think. I mean, not not Twitter because according to Twitter, the Knicks are still like the dumbest team to ever exist. Um, but like, <laughs> I would venture to guess if you asked players and executives and coaches around the NBA, like what they thought of the Knicks, I think they'd be like, yeah, they're like a solid professional basketball team. Like they're like a very normal, normally run basketball team that is not an embarrassment that doesn't have like the like if you really think about it the most embarrassing thing about our season last year was basically just Julius Randle being a total head case but like i wasn't embarrassed about the effort the overall effort or like the product we were putting out there most nights you know what i mean like it this was not a 17 win team or something like that it was it was fine. I mean, by point differential, they were a 500 team. They under, underperformed. So, um, yeah, it's like a totally professional organization right now. And Tibbs gets a good bit of credit for that. I, th- I think, like, uh, actually, if we were having this discussion about should we trade for Donovan Mitchell, and 
we didn't have like it was a couple of years ago. I mean, maybe we're just in a different organ, uh, different state too, with like where our you know franchises. But if we hadn't had the sort of if we didn't have the structure in place that we currently have, um, I would be more concerned about it than I am. You know, um, like I I do think like we'll get a Tibbs bump and a Tibbs. You know, uh, uh, any anyways, yeah. So I mean, I think Tibbs yeah, I mean, should, like, like, does get some credit. Sorry, I was just gonna say, and he's he was he was good for what we needed, and actually, I think his like weird shit. As much as I've been like angry about it a lot of times about him not playing young guys, or like he has different standards for young guys, I think than he does for older guys is the way to put it. Where like you have to absolutely like beyond a shadow of a doubt prove it to him, where he'll give older guys the benefit of the benefit of the doubt at times. I think that actually as frustrating as it is for fans who are like, we just want to see, you know, like put Obi in or put quickly in, like they're clearly better or they're clearly, you know, good enough to be playing or whatever. Um, I think it probably is good developmentally because it forces guys to like young guys to absolutely give their all and work their asses off to get it and to absolutely prove it to him. So they have to, in every practice and prove it to Tibbs any minute they get in the game, prove it to him. And then they have to work their butts off at skill development to show that they have what it takes because they have to show and they know they have to show more than the vets have to show if they want to get playing time. That probably that probably incentivizes like good habits in young guys. As much as I it drives me insane when like I'm like Obi's getting, you know, twelve minutes a game, um, and Julius Randall is being, you know, Julius Randall. <laughs> yeah. No, hundred percent. Um, all right. I think that is a good place to end it. Uh, we will save my stupid game for another day. Uh, <laughs> Dallas, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, let the people know where they can find you and plug anything that you'd look for. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at, I don't even remember my handle <laughs> at Dallas Amico underscore, I guess. Uh, I'm more frequently in the, the Strickland discord. So become a Patreon and then we can talk all the time. Um, <laughs> uh, I will plug uh, the rehearsal on HBO because it's awesome and I will plug Prez's really long article on Julius Randle on the Strickland because that was a really good article word uh, I will plug all the same things check out all the work at the Strickland all the pods and everything uh, I have nothing else to plug so I'm going I'll plug this enjoy the offseason guys and um, enjoy the next few weeks where probably nothing is going to happen. Maybe something happens with Don Mitchell. We'll see. Um, I've enjoyed the lack of anything going on. It's been wonderful. Uh, but that is our podcast for today. I hope everybody has a great week. And-